Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we're joined by Sana Jeffrey to discuss her research on vigilantism, which she's writing a PhD on at the University of Chicago. Prior to her current PhD project, Sana led the design and implementation of the National Violence Monitoring System at the World Bank in Indonesia between 2008 and 2013, which tracks various forms of violence, vigilantism included, through systematic monitoring of newspapers. She is also a visiting fellow at Pusad Paramedina, the Centre for Study of Religion and Democracy. Sana uses the term vigilantism to refer to collective violence or intimidation by private citizens against people perceived to have broken a rule or a norm. As she explains during the podcast, in Indonesia this can mean lynching of criminals, or equally punishment of behaviour seen as immoral. One form of vigilantism in particular, though, grabbed headlines in Indonesia in 2017. Dubbed persecution, it has seen mobs track down people responsible for online criticism of prominent religious figures to intimidate them into withdrawing their statements. That's where I start my chat with Sana. Sana, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, could I start by asking you, over the past year or so, public attention in Indonesia has been fixated on these incidents of so-called persecution, where people are receiving a knock on their door to confront them over criticism of religious figures online. Um, how widespread are these incidents, and are they a new phenomenon in Indonesia? The general mode of action observed in the recent string of persecution incidents is prevalent, but its use for punishing, specifically punishing criticism of religious leaders, is mostly observed around and after the anti-Ahok protests um, that took place in Jakarta in 2016. First of all, let me just say that the persecution incidents involve a little more than knocking on somebody's door to confront them over a disagreement. These incidents involve, for example, a systematic scanning of online criticism of particular religious figures, which is followed by a concerted effort to locate the alleged offender, Explicit threats of violence or actual violence from the group of people who come knocking, so to speak, in the presence of state officials such as the neighborhood chief or even the local police is usually there. And then uh, finally, the alleged offender is forced to sign a written admission of guilt and an apology. This specific mode of addressing a dispute um, with an alleged offender in the presence of state officials, but in the absence of any due legal process, is very common across the country. In fact, it is the official position of the Indonesian police to settle problems that are classified as light criminal offenses, or in Bahasa, tindak pidana ringan, in this way. Um, however, what exactly gets classified as a light criminal offense is almost entirely at the discretion of the local police. Usually offenses that are addressed in this way are you know, domestic violence and violence against children, petty theft, embezzlement, um, and even sexual misconduct. But increasingly, uh, what I've noticed in my, in my research is that this procedure is being used to address issues of a communal and political nature. So these include disputes about practice of minority sects, um, building of houses of worship, and even sort of allegations of homosexuality. This usually involves a citizen arrest of an alleged offender who is brought to the local police's office and a mob waits uh, while this person is counseled by the local police to agree to their demands. So this particular template of action has existed for a long time. It's quite common. 
but its deployment for this specific purpose of uh, monitoring insults against religious leaders is is relatively recent. I mean, before we move to that broader class of vigilantism being used against a, a range of perceived indiscretions, just on the vigilantism against criticism of religious figures, what sort of groups have been involved in that kind of systematic online scanning that you're describing there and then confronting the people responsible with intimidation or violence? So the most publicized of these events have have been perpetrated by organizations such as the FBI, the Islamic Defenders Front, where criticisms of their leader, Habib Rizik, have been followed up by members of this group. And people who have made these criticisms have been subjected to harassment. And of course, they've issued apologies. But FBI is not the only group that does that. Increasingly, uh, mainstream groups, such as uh, Natatul Ulema, which is the largest Muslim organization in Indonesia, also conducts very similar activities, which involve online monitoring to look for uh, comments that are deemed offensive to its leadership and also Muhammadiyah. And they do follow up with people who have engaged in this kind of criticism. Um, They're not as violent, nowhere near. We are not aware of any incidents where they've used violence in the way that it was used in one of the cases involving a young teenager and an FBI mob. But the sort of mode of action is very similar in in what the NU and Muhammadiyah youth have engaged in. What sort of number of incidents are we talking about? Is this tens of incidents, uh, hundreds of incidents of specifically vigilantism over criticism of religious figures? And how large a proportion of this broader phenomenon of vigilantism would they constitute? So SafeNet is an organization that compiles numbers on these kinds of incidents, and it has done so since, I think, January of 2017. And they have recorded, the last numbers I saw, at least 59 people have been subjected to similar intimidation after criticizing uh, FPE specifically and on a lot of different media platforms. And out of these recorded cases, 34 of them took place in May when the issue really caught the public's attention. Most of the incidents took place in Jakarta and West Java, which implied that they were very closely related to the larger political battle that was going on in the, during the elections and afterwards. But uh, incidents in other places have also been observed. I should say that in most of the incidents that I saw in the SafeNet data, they focused on the FPE and similar uh, attempts by other organizations such as BNU and Mohammedia were not really recorded, although they are information about them is publicly available. But I guess even allowing for that the number may be quite a bit higher than the 59 people that they've recorded being affected by this, this would presumably just be a fraction of the broader phenomenon of vigilantism that you described in your in your first answer. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and how large would you see that phenomenon as being at present? You know, both in terms of how many of these incidents are we seeing and, and how indeed you track them and how severe is the is the violence involved? It's important to note that the the physical actual physical violence involved in these incidents is not very severe. I think the one incident where the teenager is being uh, slapped around by a uh, you know group of people who gathered around him asking him to apologize and I think he was of Chinese ethnicity that that really I think made people even more concerned. That was perhaps one of the only few incidents where physical violence was done and was recorded. Um, most of these incidents involve an implicit or explicit threat of violence. So the case from Solok in West Sumatra, for example, involved this doctor who had posted some comments on her social media profile against the FBI. And she was constantly followed and she was people were outside her home, according to her own description of what, what took place. Um, and she, she was constantly afraid. 
And so the reason why a lot of the times violence is not actually used is because the victim agrees to the demands of the mob in the presence of a local police officer. And so violence does not need to be used in terms of actually punishing, but it is to withdraw the views that one expressed earlier on, and the matter is usually considered settled. And, I mean, does vigilantism, I guess the cases you've described at present, target a range of behaviours that are, in most cases, not criminal offences, or I guess it would be arguable under under Indonesian law whether they qualified as criminal offences. Is that actually a general feature of vigilantism, or is a lot of this behaviour actually targeting things that are clearly crimes? There's both, instances of both. In fact, um, one of the things that's surprising about the data coming out of Indonesia, sort of systematic recording of these kinds of incidents where violence is, physical violence is used, is that it is often, more often than not, directed against offenses that are clearly uh, regulated within the criminal code. Most of these include criminal theft. So usually petty theft or theft of motorbikes um, is the sort of the current largest offense that is punished most violently by communities. And I should note that in these kinds of offenses that are criminal in nature, the perpetrator of vigilante violence is not more often than not um, an organization such as the FBI. It's actually just regular communities that engage in this kind of violence to punish criminal offenses that they think are disturbing their, their communities. How are you tracking the prevalence of these sorts of incidents? And could you give any, you said theft was the largest category of, I guess, incidents where people are uh, targeting behaviour clearly regulated by the criminal code. Um, are you able to give any sense of the proportion of incidents that target those sort of perceived undesirable behaviours on the one hand and those that are targeting things that are clearly crime on the other hand? So according to the data collected by the National Violence Monitoring System, which was an effort conducted by the World Bank and by the Indonesian Ministry for Social Welfare, about 77% of the incidents of uh, vigilante violence recorded in 16 provinces across Indonesia between 2005 and 2014 are directed against legally punishable offenses such as theft, accidents or so road accidents, rape, molestation, murder, and even debt. Um, the remaining 23% of incidents are directed against offenses that are not regulated by the criminal code or, or very clearly regulated. So, for example, sorcery, witchcraft. Insult, uh, which is not always directed against, you know, a religious figure, but could also be directed against, for example, a local elite or, or a neighbor. Sexual misdemeanors, which include sort of sexual deviance allegations and other sort of general sinful acts that include prostitution, gambling, sale of alcohol and all kinds of other sort of things like that. This is actually a pretty remarkable set of data that you're drawing on here from the National Violence Monitoring System, as far as I understand developed by systematically going through local papers in those provinces and coding the incidents that are found. I mean, based on that data, are you able to give us any sense of is vigilantism increasing over time? How many deaths it causing? Uh, just giving us a sense of the trends and the, the overall scale of this phenomenon. So I should start by saying that vigilante violence in itself is not an entirely new phenomenon in Indonesia or anywhere else in, in the world uh, for that matter. So Scholars of Indonesian politics routinely refer to popular justice practices in Indonesian villages, including uh, and especially lynching of, of alleged thieves, even under the Dutch colonial rule and all throughout the new order. However, what we can see clearly through the National Violence Monitoring System dataset is that there is a sustained increase in both the frequency of incidents related to vigilante violence, as well as the deaths that it has led to since 2005. 
So specifically, we can see that there's a 20% increase in incidence of vigilante violence since 2005, and there's a 50% increase in deaths related to these incidents. In terms of total numbers of incidents of vigilante violence that we have recorded in the 16 provinces that are representative of the Indonesian population between 2005 and 2014 are 26,414 incidents that have resulted in a total of 1,693 deaths. Now, again, this is just half the country, roughly. And so if we were to extrapolate to the rest of the country, I would expect the figure to more than double. And you mentioned the prevalence is increasing over time. Uh, How many deaths would we be talking in the most recent year for which you've got data? So for the most recent year that we do have data, which is actually national data, so it it covers all the provinces for Indonesia in 2014. That's the most recent full year that we have. We have 4,306 incidents of vigilante violence in 2014 from uh, across the country and 303 deaths in total. And would most of those deaths be, as you said, in theft, traffic accident cases, or are they spread across a, a range of categories? So actually, it's really interesting to note that most of the deadly lynchings or deadly vigilante violence is directed against criminal offenses and sorcery. So theft and witchcraft are the two sort of leading causes of death by vigilantism. So high high levels of violence is rarely used for other kinds of offenses, such as you know, social offenses, or when there's a raid against a place that is suspected of prostitution, there's a lot of vandalism, there's a lot of breaking of things, but it does not usually result in, in a death or even a very serious injury. Do you get a sense from your data whether these kind of vigilantism incidents are fairly evenly spread across the country, or are they concentrated in particular areas, say in urban areas or, or in areas that have particular structural or, or demographic characteristics? So from the data, we know that vigilantism is quite widespread across the country, but it is not evenly distributed. And what is more of that is that its distribution is uneven in somewhat surprising ways. So firstly, so when we think about, you know, the history of vigilantism, common forms of vigilante violence, such as lynching of thieves, etc., were associated with rural areas, mostly sort of thought of as a village phenomena. Uh, But now we see that urban areas have surpassed rural areas in terms of being impacted by vigilante violence. Um, Specifically, the data, for example, show that um, the uh, incidence of vigilante violence is three times more likely to occur in an urban area today, uh, even when we control for the population differences between urban and rural areas in Indonesia. Also, when a lynching occurs in an urban area, it is 30% 30 more likely to result in a death uh, compared to rural areas. Um, It's therefore fair to say that vigilantism in Indonesia has evolved from being a rural phenomena to an increasingly urban one over the past decade. So sort of a second pattern that emerges from the data is that, you know, dominant explanations of vigilante violence describe it as a post-conflict phenomenon. So scholars most expect to see high levels of vigilantism in areas that have experienced high levels of communal violence or wars, where formal state security institutions are usually in a disarray. In Indonesia, we see actually the opposite. So vigilantism is much higher in Java and Sumatra compared to the country's eastern and central provinces, such as Maluku and Kalimantan, that experienced severe communal violence in the early years of of the transition period. So going through the first trend first, why do you think we've seen this shift from a rural-dominated phenomenon to to something happening more and in more deadly form in in urban areas? 
I think it has uh, something to do with socioeconomic change and, and sort of what I've noticed in my research is that the perception of threat in local communities, especially in urban and suburban areas, is very high, uh, mostly due to rapid infrastructure development and influx of migrants from all over the country. So the community leaders that I have spoken with, for example, express high levels of suspicion and anxiety over outsiders walking into their previously serene neighborhoods and creating a host of problems, such as sort of sexual misconduct and lack of respect for authority, and of course, of course, crime. And so there's a lot of just a general wave of vigilance in these communities. There, there's a lot of patrols. There's a lot of setting up of security posts to monitor the comings and goings of people who are not known to the community. And that might have something to do with a higher level of incidents that, that we observe in these areas. And I mean, what about the concentration in Java and Sumatra? Is it just that these are more urbanized islands or do you think something else is at play there? I think that the, the presence, the higher level of vigilante violence in Java and Sumatra in itself is perhaps not as worthy of note as is the relatively low level of vigilante violence in post-conflict areas, right? So one has to think about what is it that is preventing similar levels of vigilante violence in, in areas where you would expect it the most, where you know, communal, there has been communal breakdown, there is a history of violence, there is a history of popular participation or popular exposure to violence. And I think that has something to do with the way that policing has been improved in those areas. And the police take vigilante violence very seriously because they think that it might result in a larger episode of, of communal violence. And I mean, you mentioned the surprising phenomenon based on previous research that we haven't seen sort of large incidents of vigilantism in these post-conflict areas based in part, you say, on sort of better policing uh, and sensitivity to the incidents in those areas. Of course, across the period of time that you're looking at, we've seen Indonesia as a whole become more stable. The large scale conflicts have receded. Terrorism, too, has diminished in its impacts, um, and arguably the police have expanded their presence significantly across the country and, in theory, have you know at least had some improvement in, in handling crime. Why is it that under those circumstances of a, a more stable, consolidated democracy, we're continuing to see these incidents of vigilantism increase? I think that there are two factors, uh, two sort of large background conditions that promote this kind of behavior. One is perhaps the most obvious one is that there is a general dissatisfaction with the law and its enforcement. Um, it, it is true, as you pointed out, that the Indonesian security forces have developed a much greater capacity for managing security, uh, especially high level threats such as communal violence and terrorism. But improvements in sort of routine policing have been slow. So perpetrators of vigilantism, as well as the ordinary citizens that I have uh, interviewed in the course of my research, frequently describe very difficult experiences in reporting their grievances to the police, who are slow to act on it, if at all. In turn, um, you know, to be perfectly open about this, local police personnel are also quick to point out the budget constraints under which they operate, as well as the human rights concerns. Um, that keep them from taking the kind of instant and harsh actions that communities and vigilante groups sometimes demand. Right? And their recourse here is that the police ends up systematically encouraging people to settle their grievances out of the formal legal system so that it's faster and then it, it can be you know, sort of put to rest, which is ironically strengthening the already widespread belief that the law is not to be taken very seriously. 
So that's the one sort of background condition. And of course, you know, the state response to actual acts of vigilantism in itself is problematic and full of contradictions. Um, and it is, I think, the single most crucial factor in understanding why this occurs. Sure, sure. And could you talk us through the state response or attitude to vigilantism? Because, I mean, you've described the police encouraging citizens to, to resolve minor disputes themselves. You've mentioned local officials essentially planning sort of levels of violence against offenders in, in some areas. Is there an overall permissive attitude or is there actually a variance in the ways that the state actors approach vigilantism? So I think what's common across the state response at all levels of government is, is first of all, ambivalence, right? So at very high levels of government, you know, we're talking about presidents and ministers, you know, they frequently issue warnings about how popular justice is, is not to be tolerated, that nobody is allowed to take the law into their own hands. At the same time, however, there are explicit calls for, you know, calls upon the community to come out and, you know, take care of the supposedly remaining communists in, in the country. Um, and if you recall once, uh, very famously, a previous home minister in Indonesia called the FPE, which is a leading vigilante organization, a national asset, right? This ambivalence is very much reflected also in the way that local state actors respond to local acts of, of vigilantism. So, for example, in a vast majority of, of cases that I mentioned earlier, the police does not actually prosecute perpetrators of vigilantism, even in cases of deadly lynchings. There are, however, calls to exhort the community to, you know, don't do that. That's not acceptable. Don't do that. Please refrain from taking action yourself. Report it to us. We will take care of it. So these kinds of calls are rarely actually accompanied by any actual action to arrest the perpetrators of, of vigilante mobs. There are only two conditions under which that I know of that the police has uh, lodge formal cases against perpetrators of vigilantism. One is if there is a threat of escalation into communal violence. So the police is very active in managing that. So they will go and arrest the perpetrators if it is the case that the target of vigilantism, who, for example, died, belonged to a different religious or ethnic community, and there is a risk of response from from that community. The police is very quick to take action. And the other is when the alleged offender is actually innocent. And his family is insisting or pressing the police to to file charges. Those are the only two conditions under which the police takes actions uh, action against the vigilantes. And usually there there's there's none of that. And this is about criminal vigilantism. In terms of social vigilantism, or sort of more politically motivated, as we know, uh, and through a number of incidents that have been publicized over time, the police is often leading these mobs, right, in a bid to prevent them from going too far and and to be, you know, from being too violent against their targets. The police will often accompany them, will often lead them into places that they want to go and and conduct these raids. And this is quite visible also in the cases of persecution that I, that we discussed earlier, where a police official is usually present along with the mob, trying to consult the victim to submit to their demands, right? And if that's the case, that sends a very powerful signal to the victims and also to the perpetrators that this kind of behavior is actually very effective. You mentioned earlier that uh, when you speak to officers at local level, they mention they can't take the sort of drastic action that communities are demanding. I mean, in fact, we do know that the police in Indonesia are responsible for a good many fatal shootings of, of suspects of crime. Is this part also of the, the reason why we are seeing uh, sort of fatal vigilante incidents against criminal offenders? Are the two phenomenon linked, do you think? 
So there is a correlation. If you look at the data, there is a high level of correlation um, between vigilante action and also violence perpetrated by formal security forces in the line of duty, right? So this includes, for example, shooting a suspect when he's running away or, you know, the death of a suspect in, in pursuit or in custody, for example. So there is evidence to suggest that both things are are somehow linked, although the, the direction of causality is not very clear in this, in the sense that uh, we don't know if it is the case that the police is taken to these tactics in order to satisfy the people that they are in charge of serving to make the communities happy by killing or uh, by swiftly you know, getting rid of certain suspected criminals. Or it is the case that communities have picked up on this from police action and are now taking it as a signal of what is allowed. What about at the highest levels of government? I mean, we've seen the Jokowi government treat some of the organisations involved in the broader so-called action to defend Islam as an explicit threat dissolving Hizbut Tahrir, for example, through this new emergency legislation. Do we see a similar attitude towards vigilantism, that this is a threat or something to be treated with contempt, or, or is it harder to discern their attitude to this phenomenon? I don't think that there is a general state response against vigilantism or a sort of a larger effort to try to counter it. What I do see that there is an effort is to try to moderate it, to try to keep it within bounds. So as long as, for example, an organization like the FBE is doing local work, so for example, going around and you know asking people to shut down certain places of sin, so to speak, or trying to keep their activities sort of confined to local targets, I don't think that there will be a national effort to try to root that out. But as long as these sort of templates of actions that have been developed in different parts of the country are sort of scaled up and directed against political targets, that's a problem, I think, for the government. And I think their efforts are more directed against changing the target and making sure that FPE is not, uh, efforts are not directed against it itself instead of, you know, the, the regular things that they that they do. Now, I mean, if we're unlikely to see a concerted effort from the government to, um, or if we're seeing the government focused on keeping this phenomenon within limits rather than tackling it head on. Are there other constituencies within Indonesia who are making concerted efforts to counter vigilantism and uh, what sort of things are they doing? So it's interesting that in Indonesia, efforts to counter vigilantism by particular groups, uh, such as or particular problematic groups such as the FPE, have come from other vigilante groups such as the Enus Banser. Bansur is a paramilitary organization maintained by Nadatul Ulama, Indonesia's largest Islamic organization. Right, so where there have been sort of, you know, mob attacks or mob action against particular minority targets in Chiribon, for example, this is very famous and took place a few months ago, was that minorities then had to call upon the rival organization, which was sort of seen as more tolerant and more on the side of minorities, to then come and counter groups like the FPE. Right? And the police in this are usually seen as uh, mediators. This is not to say that individual police officers are not concerned by this. In fact, many of the officers that I have spoken to, they're quite concerned and they do not like to be in a place where they have to cater to organizations or, or demands by a mob. At the same time, however, there's a sense that they can't really uh, stray too far and they can't take the risk of making an organization like that unhappy or making a community or, um, that manifests itself in a mob unhappy because they need the support of these groups and these communities to do their daily jobs. So 
you know, in that sense, it's very difficult for even concerned local police officers to to take a very hard line against this kind of activity. Yeah. What about broader so-called progressive civil society? Do we see concerted action? Is there anything they can do to kind of rein in this phenomenon? The thing I see in sort of liberal circles within Indonesia is that they're quick to criticize actions by groups such as FPE because they are very clearly politically motivated. And they see this as a political problem, right? They see vigilantism purely in, and they see it as a problem only when it becomes political. It takes on a political flavor. Um, when it comes to the street, it blocks the streets, and then they're demanding the resignation of a governor, for example. They're demanding, you know, high death sent, high prison sentence for somebody like Ahok. That becomes a problem. But the sort of daily and quotidian versions of vigilantism that happen every day have a high level of resonance and sort of sympathy, even within the most liberal kind of circles in Indonesia. Right? They see this as something that is, um, well, you know, what else are we going to do? Something that is uh, substituting for what they perceive as the state's ineffectiveness in providing security. So I'm not sure that you can you know, have both attitudes at the same time. I'm not sure that you can you can consider the lynching of a thief very legitimate and sort of go along and, you know, say that, oh, well, you know, that's moral indignation by, you know, legitimate for legitimate reasons by a community and then say that, but vigilantism when it's directed against a political target, uh, that's problematic. I think that would have to be resolved if there this is to be addressed. Finally, I mean, how typical is the sort of vigilantism we see in Indonesia of the phenomenon in comparable democracies around the world? Are there, are there lessons that could be drawn from other cases, either in terms of steps to combat vigilantism or what we might expect in terms of trends into the future? So what we observe in Indonesia in terms of a surge in vigilante violence is in no way unique. Other developing countries such as South Africa, Nigeria, Mexico, Guatemala, as well as India and Pakistan, continue to struggle with very similar problems. Although numbers or detailed numbers on you know the levels of incidents and, and deaths are not always as readily available, I think most uh, people would recall the recent examples of you know lynching of a young college student in, in Pakistan on a blasphemy charge by his own college mates, and the sort of string of cow vigilantes um, in India where mobs would lynch people on suspicion of eating beef. These are just some of the sort of more recent incidents that have brought attention to this issue that is uh, very prevalent in, in other similar contexts as well. What is important to keep in mind here is that the specific targets of vigilantism vary according to the politics and cultural context and, you know, the, the history of a particular place. But again, the way to think about it, I think, is to look at the mode of action you know, violence collectively by private act, private actors uh, done against claims of justice, all right? These are the things that unite these kinds of incidents across different contexts. And also, and remembering that these kinds of very publicized incidents occur against a background of very quotidian, very everyday acts of lynching in other countries as well, I think is, is what we can learn um, by comparing Indonesia. My sense then from what you're saying is there's nothing that would lead us to think either from Indonesia itself or from these other cases that there would be a diminution of vigilante violence in the in the near future in Indonesia. 
I'm personally not aware of any case in which vigilante violence has been dealt with effectively or just gotten rid of, except for the case in the United States. So as you know, historically in the United States, especially in the South, you know, there was a there was widespread lynching of African-Americans in that context, and that has been uh, effectively stopped. And so if we're looking for a successful case of how to get rid of it, well, you know, start, start, the state has to arrest and the state has to, you know, deal with people who are perpetuating this kind of violence to send a signal that this is, the state does not have an ambivalent stance and that, you know, crime is a crime and it will be dealt with, with the full force of the law. I don't see any other way out of it except, you know, arresting people and, and processing them through the legal system who engage in this kind of violence. Indeed. Sana, on that note, there's still a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for sharing your research and insights with us today. Thank you. That was Sana Jaffrey, PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago, and also a visiting fellow at Pusad Paramedina, the Center for the Study of Religion and Democracy in Jakarta. Sana, of course, previously led the design and implementation of the National Violence Monitoring System at the World Bank in Indonesia as well. That was the final episode of Talking Indonesia for 2017. Thanks so much for listening over the course of the year, and please do post any feedback on any of our social media channels or rate the podcast on iTunes. Talking Indonesia will return in 2018 on the 18th of January, in the meantime, as always, you can browse the entire archive of episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, via iTunes, or your favourite podcasting app. Until next year, this has been the Talkie Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.